Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to Pediatric Meltdown. And today we're stepping out of the box a little bit and expanding our view beyond the individual child to all children, the world's children. My guest today is Dr. Koye Oriende. Dr. Oriende is a pediatrician and health policy expert. His more than 30 years of experience include stints as a medical officer, pediatrician, health policy researcher, and teacher. While on faculty at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University, he provided technical assistance to more than 30 national ministries of health in the Global South on maternal and child health service delivery. Koye was a member of GAVIS Independent Review Committee for six years. He is the current Policy and Advocacy Chair on the Executive Committee of the Section on Global Health of the American Academy of Pediatrics. He lives in Akron, Ohio, where he works in a federally qualified health center. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Oyerende to help expand our view of global health and what we can do at home. Hi, Koye. How are you? I'm very fine. Thank you. I am so appreciative of your time and I'm really interested in this topic. It's a little bit different than we've had before, sort of thinking of big picture things. You know, we we focus a lot on mental health, emotional health, but you can't have that if you don't have just basic health. And so I think uh, caring for our kids as a whole is really important and and the society even beyond that. So, I, you know, I just wanted to kind of start with, tell us a little bit about your story, how you got into pediatrics and global health and, and this field that you're so interested in. Well, I, mean, I think I got interested in, in medicine quite early because I had a very sickly childhood. I was being raised in Nigeria uh, and I had malaria almost every other month. Mm. And I'll be, every part of malaria, I was back in the street hospital with my mom. And then eventually, because we were always there, my brother and I got enrolled into what became the WHO growth, growth monitoring chart. And we were part of the, essentially the guinea pigs of how they developed the database for producing that growth chart. And then every month, the team doing this research would come home to take us, take us to the teaching hospital for our heights and weights, you know. And then, of course, we got to hang out with them. They, Clinic there, they had chocolates and things for us to. <laughs> so it was always fun going there. So that's how I got to know a lot of young doctors and nurses and people who worked in that health research institute in the University College Hospital. And so that's how I got interested in medicine. You were involved in global health before you, <laughs> before before you were a physician way early, <laughs> right? And then as a physician, as a, I trained as a doctor in Nigeria, and I went to work and live in Southern Africa. And while I was there, I was doing some rapid studies in epidemiology. And then I was hired by UNICEF to do a few studies for them in several countries. And that's how I began a, a, a huge chunk of my career in Google Health. 
followed from that process. Wow, that is so interesting. And then how did you end up in the United States doing the work that you're doing now? Well, I came to the States for the first time as a short-term fellow at the CDC. I had written some proposal about monitoring of atmospheric pollutants and asthma in children in Southern Africa. And the CDC folks got their hands on that document and invited me over to spend three months doing some work on the project. And so it was while I was here that I said, okay, how do I practice here? I said, well, you have to do the USMLE exam. I said, oh, that's not bad. I'll do them. And they were all shocked. I said, oops, that's very difficult. Just that you're going to do them. Said, yeah, exams. Let's do them. <laughs> and that's how I did the USMLEs. And then I went back to South Africa to continue my work over there. And then years later, I came back residents in the U.S. Helen, you've been very involved, um, and you and I crossed paths through the American Academy of Pediatrics, so I think we're very lucky to have you, and I know you're involved in the section on global health right. and, uh, and a lot of the initiatives. I mean, the AAP does work not only in the United States and Canada, but really around the world, right? Correct. The AAP is indeed a, a global organization because it does a lot of work to influence child health and advocacy issues around the world. So we have to take our work seriously because the world is looking, right? True. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have written a book. The title is quite provocative, and I think the content of it, your focus is really important. And I think, you know, we've been grappling with healthcare in the United States for as long as I can remember, and it's a hot political topic. I know we've grappled with it at the AAP about how we work within this very messy system. So the book's title is Who Should We Let Die? And can you talk about what was the birth of that book and what's the focus? Well, I mean, the book so for a time in my life, I was a professor at Columbia University. So I had these students I had to help with their research work and their academic plans and all. And many of them felt I had unique experiences and unique ways of looking at problems. And many of them were saying, you need to write a book. You need to write a book. When is that book going to come out? Then I said, okay, I'm going to write something. <laughs> so the focus of the book really is about how we organize healthcare. Uh, so about 1978, there was a global conference where Health for All became a slogan. And they said, Health for All by the year 2000. Mm. Well, when I entered medical school in 1981, our teacher said, you're going to be the ones to do this Health for All thing because we're training you so that you can help expand access to health for everyone, everywhere in the world. And I kind of bought into that spirit. But yes, why shouldn't everybody have help? We should all have help. And so the book looks at my experience being a student at the height of the call for health for all, and then how I engage with that as a young physician, and then later on as someone who worked global health, and someone who worked you know, as a professor at the university, and also a practitioner of pediatrics in the U.S. And if we just say people come to the clinic or to the emergency room, we just treat them and let them go, and we don't care about what happens in their lives outside of those institutions, then we're saying we don't really care. You can go and die. All I've done is giving you a prescription and my work is done. But how do you pick up that prescription? So let's say you have insulin. You need a fridge to preserve your insulin. Don't put it in the sun all day long. 
if you're homeless, you don't have insurance. So all of these things affect the work we do. And we cannot, as physicians, just be content with seeing them in the clinic or in the ER or on the floor in the hospital and not care about what happens to their lives outside those premises. And I think so much of what is happening in people's lives dictates their health outcomes. I right. mean, if, like you mentioned, you know, uh, I mean, if you're homeless, you're not going to be doing your homework. I mean, you just... That's just not a priority and there's not even a space to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you might not have access to a computer. If you have a computer, you might not have broadband. I mean, there's just so many ripples. I mean, you're talking about something now 40 years later, almost, right? right. And, and it's still a big mess. I mean, you know, trying to access care and all the clinicians listening know all about prior authorizations and claim denials and coding. And I mean, it's just, it is so complicated you used a term that really struck me, and that's a GoFundMe health system. I mean, how does that apply? What, what does that mean? So I had two ways of describing this functional health system in the book. I said one is the GoFundMe health system, and the other is the pay-as-you-go health system. So in my native country, you have a, let's say you have a sudden belly pain, and it goes to the emergency room. Okay, they will examine you. That's free. But from that point of the, after the examination, anything after that is you pay as you go. Oh, now you need a blood test. Okay, you have to pay cash. Oh, you need a sonogram for that abdomen. You have to pay cash. Oh, now it's appendicitis. Isn't it going to theater? You have to pay cash. So that's the pay as you go system. In the US, we have a system that allows us to at least get care. Emergency room, the so-called MTALA, requires that everybody tended to uh, the emergency room. But that's where the care ends. Then you must have insurance for everything after that. And then your insurance might have high copays and high deductibles. So if your deductible is 12000 a year, then you might need to go to GoFundMe to help pay for the rest of your care. I don't know anybody who keeps 12000 in place waiting for healthcare problems. Well, and we see that all the time. I mean, it comes to mind, you know, kids, adults who have like, for example, cancer care that is extraordinarily expensive. And no one's turning them away. They're providing the care. But at the end of this are, you know, tens of thousands, hundred thousand dollar bills. And then you do see these GoFundMe campaigns. And, and that's a sad state of affairs that, you know, you have essentially right. destroyed these people's lives financially. Yeah. And more than have to sell property, have to, have to debate between paying their rent and paying for health care. But should I steal this child? Or should I go and pay the hospital money and owing? I mean, those are the kinds of things that people have to grapple with every day. I just think it's frankly human rights abuse. If you look at the health insurance industry, the big hospital corporations, we organize the system in a way that top executive compensations are in competition with our health. So all the big health insurance corporations, they make their money by the subscriptions we make to the insurance companies. Well, so the way they make a lot of money for their shareholders and for their executives is deny our services. They say, oh, with that extra MRI you want to do, you don't need it. You want first to do a sonogram. I mean, I was very angry once when I was caring for a child in the emergency room. He said, this is classical appendicitis. We're, we're making the diagnosis of appendicitis before we had ultrasound, before we had CT scan. But they said, no. The insurance requires that we do ultrasound of the abdomen before we can do a CT with contrast of the abdomen. Okay, so we did this ultrasound. The ultrasound was um, inconclusive. Then we had to do a kid with a belly pain. 
We have to force the kid to drink this horrible fluid, contrast, and then do a CT. And then before the surgeons came, and then they said, oh, okay, we're going to do this surgery. By the time they did the surgery, the appendix was ruptured. He said, what, what in the, come on, we can run the system better than have to go through all these hoops and loops just because we want to treat the sick kid. And in the end, that's poorer care yeah. than it should get. And I think probably everyone listening has those cases in their head. I mean, I have, I don't get angry a lot, <laughs> but man, I have yelled at some people at the insurance companies trying to, I, this makes no sense. I'm the physician. I have made this diagnosis and this is the appropriate treatment. You need to pay for this. And oh, yeah, I had many of those conversations. What are some of the biggest barriers you see in particular for poor families, because I think a lot of people would say, well, they have Medicaid or they have CHIP, but it doesn't end there, right? And then there's those kids that the families don't make enough to qualify for Medicaid or CHIP and 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 they're stuck with these huge bills. So so what do you think some of those barriers are? I think they they're just too many programs that are not well aligned, right? So if you're extremely poor, you get Medicaid. If you then get a job at Walmart or somewhere, they get some entry level position somewhere, you're getting a thousand plus a month or something, then maybe you don't qualify. And it's such a minefield determining what you qualify for and what you don't qualify for. So you find that some parents just give up entirely and not even find out what their kids qualify for because they don't know where to go. You go to Medicaid, they say, well, you're earning this income, we'll bring your last W2. Well, last W two is not what you're earning today. That's what you earned last year. Now you're not you're not out of work, but they're basing your income on what you earned last year when you had a good job. And so there are all these administrative challenges to people accessing accessing benefits when they're even there. And do you think, yeah. in some ways, I think I know the answer to this is yes. But how did COVID highlight these? disparities. And I know that there were some kind of some benefit things that happened with childcare credits. We actually saw an improvement in poverty, but those tax credits, you know, are not lasting because people don't think we should give money to poor people. So what else do you, you know, what do you think about COVID and health disparities? Well, COVID just, COVID is a horrible illness because it's sat in between everything, all the fault lines in our politics, in our policy frameworks, and even in our own physical health. If you had a little problem with your heart, then COVID made it worse. If you had diabetes, COVID made it worse. Now, in health policy, if you had a job but you don't have sickness benefits, but most of the people who died in the early days of the pandemic were people in the so-called minoritized group who they had to deliver goods. They are paid by the day. So if you didn't deliver the goods today, then you don't get paid for that day. Then you can't feed the kids and get home. And when they say, all of us should stay at home and don't go to work to avoid spreading the pandemic, okay, how are you going to stay at home when you earn your income on a daily basis? And if you fell ill, there was no insurance to, there was no sick leave benefits. So if you didn't have sick leave benefits, that means you earned no income when you were ill. Well, so if you had a sore throat and little sniffles that nobody would pick up at work, then you went to work as well. When in a good society that gives you sick 
coughs. Then you say, well, you know, I have a sore throat and I have sniffles and cough. I'm going to stay at home so I don't spread it to my coworkers. Well, because we didn't have these kinds of things, well, people who are sick went to work. And, and that's how COVID spread so badly in certain communities. Whereas in more wealthy and affluent communities, well, if you go to their you know, second home in the Hamptons, good, well-spaced out, they didn't have to, you know, share the subway with everybody else, taxes and buses with everybody else. And, and that's the, that's how COVID then increased the disparities in society. Because the rich were able to run away and hide somewhere where the poor couldn't afford to stay at home. They had to work. They had to make deliveries. They had to care for the, you know, nursing home folks. They had to take the buses and so on. Well, in big cities like New York City, they got hammered, you know, and those folks are living in tight quarters. So, right. you know, right. how do you how do you physically distance when you got six people living in a you right. know, two bedroom apartment and right. your neighbor next door is in the same straits you are and you're sharing halls and elevators? And is it any wonder? Is it any wonder? But I think we were like, you know, like surprised. Right. <laughs> it would be so bad. Well, let's say that you were given a magic wand. I mean, what would better look like? What would you do? Well, I mean, the, I think the first thing we need to do in America is to say that health is a human right, that all of us deserve to have health. And then to maintain that health, we need health care. So we need access to health care for all of us. And in the book, I mentioned the Indian Health Service. Well, you access health care in the Indian Health Service as a right if you are a member of the tribe. That's what we should do for America. All Americans should have access to health care as a right because they are American, not because they are wealthy or can afford it. Doesn't sound like that should be so radical. That is, it's not radical. It's, that's what happened in the United Kingdom. Because you're a British citizen, you have a right to health care. So you go to your NHS service and they sign you up for care. The Canadians have access to health care for all Canadians. And so the way we have evolved in the U.S., health care evolved around employee benefits. So the employer provides you benefits, which includes your health care coverage. But well, imagine people who lost their health, who lost their jobs during COVID. So you lose your job and suddenly you lose health care. And then look at the ripple effect on the family of someone who loses a job. Then the kids also drop their health care. And then the kids now want to get Medicaid. But their dad earned a lot of income the previous year, so they don't qualify. So they're running between Medicaid and like SHIP. Did I get Medicaid? Can I get have both? And the whole system gets muddy that, you know, difficult to know what to get. Right. And illness knows no time frame, right? It just shows up. Well, you mentioned the UK and Canada. And, you know, I think Americans, you know, we're very egocentric, which probably most countries are. But, you know, we think, you know, we're the best in the world, that we are the leaders and um, and we are in many things, but we're not in the health of our citizens. I mean, we're not. We look at, at other industrialized countries like Scandinavian countries and other European countries, Japan. You know, we fall far below in infant mortality, the health of our children. So which countries stand out for you that are doing this well? Well, the, the UK, the Canada does it well. Most of the European countries do it well. The Scandinavian countries do it very well. If you look at poor countries, even Cuba does it very well. You get your health insurance, you get your health coverage because you're a citizen. That's all. There's no, you don't have to prove anyone. There are places even like small Rwanda 
almost 70% of their health budget is donor funded, but everybody gets, uh, well, almost, I think their coverage is about 95 to 98% coverage, their choil, their insurance system there in Rwanda. So it's, it's a political commitment. It's almost like when, when JFK challenged us to go to the moon, we dropped everything and said, we're going to make it happen. And, and it's happened. Same thing here. If we decide health is a human right, all of us Americans must have access to health. We can make it happen. Yeah. So, you know, of course, I mean, it sounds like it should just be a yes. Like, of course, we would do this. So from your vantage point, where does the naysaying come from? I mean, what do you think if you're in the minds of those who are opposed to this? What is that? What is that based on? What's the fear? Well, I think it's the part of it is part of the, the history of the country that, you know, the whole frontiersman attitude that we went and captured the Wild West and expanded the frontiers and so on. So you find a lot of people have this sense that I can do it all by myself. I should provide for the health of my family. I should provide for myself. Why aren't you providing for yourself? But I think it's really me that we all need someone to help us out. Well, we're only one illness injury away sometimes from right. bankruptcy. And, right. and, and it's just, it kind of boggles the mind when you know that a lot of the politicians who are just vehemently opposed to this represent constituents that are poor, that are sick, that may have serious addictions and can't get, I mean, the list goes on. And so you sort of think, how do you stay in that position when the people you represent so badly need this. It's such a disconnect. It is a disconnect. But I think they they have convinced the electorate that, oh, we're fighting for you anyway, but you have to do it by yourself. But, you know, we didn't build the roads. We drove. I mean, I drove on this morning. I didn't have to build that road. Somebody, taxpayers from some generations ago, put that road there. So it shouldn't be hard for us to think of it in that sense. But, you know, it's part of our duty to pay taxes to provide for the health care of ourselves yeah. and our fellow men. You think it's a fantasy? Do you think that, can it happen? Is that is that a possibility? It will have to happen. because it, It's the only way forward. One of, the, one of the things COVID taught us is that we must care about the health of our neighbors. I used to work uh, on 168th Street in New York. And there was that elevator there. It was called the TB elevator. Because when you get out of the elevator, it's a TB clinic. So there are people coming for the, to the TB clinic, use that same elevator. And all the doctors coming to work there, health scientists working down the area, we all go through that same elevator. Well, I need to care about the guy who's coughing next to me in that elevator. I need to make sure that, you know, everybody in New York who has TB has access to care. While I work there, I'll probably be exposed to cheating from people coming to, to, to get their clinic care there. It's the same thing with our kids going to school. You need to care about the other kids in the classroom of your kid and how they get their health care. Well, it, otherwise, it, it affects you. I mean, right? Yes, it affects otherwise the young, sure. your own children will bring this illness home. They bring it home to their grandparents and then the whole casket begins. Yeah. So we must care about the health of others. Look, we're having more pandemics now. We can't leave that to people paying for their care or people searching for insurance. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's like a poor person having COVID standing next to someone who may not want a mask or get vaccinated and they get COVID. I mean, COVID doesn't know the difference between that. 
So you're putting yourself, your family, your community at risk out of kind of principle that really mm-hmm. is sort of a fallacy and sort of that I just need to take care of myself really doesn't benefit you. Right. By doing if you, that. If you look at the, how the UK handled the distribution of vaccines, they didn't have to set up a new, whole new arrangement with CVS and all these other corporate organizations to get the vaccines out because people already had a GP they went to for the vaccine and everybody was connected to a GP. So there wasn't all the, the hullabaloo. It was interesting. I uh, traveled to Bali in this past June, which I had the good fortune to do, but I had to go through London and Doha in Qatar. Mm-hmm. They required, I had to be vaccinated in order to get on those planes and in Qatar, I had to wear a mask and, you know, I sure as heck wasn't going to challenge anybody there that <laughs> I didn't want to do that. I mean, I was totally on board, but it was interesting. You had to have a QR code or some certificate. And I said, well, fortunately, I had a QR code, but I said, well, here's my card. And they said, the United States is the only one that issued these cards and they can be forged. And so that's not good enough for us. Right. And it was uh, you know, it was kind of mind-boggling, again, that here we're supposed to be the leaders of being smart and and wealthy and able, and yet we fell so far behind and continue right. out of stubbornness or some justification that, you know, you do it on your own, you can do it, and I'm not going to help you because that's somehow enabling you. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So that was kind of an eye-opener. Well, I wanted to switch gears just a little bit on global health because you work in that and kind of some of the work that the AAP is doing because the United States does have some wealth of knowledge, kind of strategies and skills, programs that we do like neonatal resuscitation. So can you talk for just a minute a little bit about what the global health initiatives have been through the AAP? Well, the AAP has a huge portfolio of work in the global space, global health space. AAP has connections to virtually all the world's pediatric societies. And each individual country pediatric society connects with AAP for support. So sometimes it's the Japanese pediatric society that wants help with something. Sometimes it's the Nigerian pediatric society. I know the Kenyan, I think there are three countries in the Eastern Africa region, Kenya, Uganda, and another country that's working with AAP on newborn care models, immunization campaigns that the AAP works with different countries on. Then there are some other, like Gavi, like the Global Fund for tuberculosis, HIV and malaria, that it is able to influence them by sending, sometimes they need expertise. So it might send a US-based pediatrician to be on their committees for certain things and be able to advise them. So those are the ways that AAP works with different countries around the world to influence care for children. So I think that's one of the things I think Americans can be, and certainly pediatricians can be really proud about the work that we do well, but I think we have to be humble about what we don't do well and not always be the purveyors of the way to do things, but being open and humble enough to ask other countries, how do you do this so much better than right. we are? How does that happen? Because sort of that pride gets in the way of kids surviving or not. I mean, our black babies don't do well in this right. country. I mean, they, they just, there's huge disparities in infant mortality right. that just haven't been able to move that right. needle. So um, 
Well, I appreciate everything that you're doing. If listeners are interested in global health, is is that something that they can join the section? Yes, the section on global health, the AAP, accepts membership from all pediatricians. But they have to be AAP members, and then they're able to join the section on global health. Sometimes we have associate members who are not AAP members or because they work with the section on something. Mm-hmm. For example, we have the ICATCH program in the section on global health. It's uh, modeled after the US-based CATCH program. So the ICATCH program provides small grants to applicants from around the world, around the low and middle income countries who apply for the grants, the whole application process, they prepare a project that they want to use the grants for. And so it's a homegrown project. So they decide what they want to use the money for, and then they apply to the iCatch program. And if they're successful, they get funded. One of the flagships of um, that project was a small hospital in, I think it was Laos, that has a small floating garden around the pediatric practice. So the, the inpatient kids were fed fresh vegetables from the floating garden. And the iCatch program funded them to expand that garden. A lot of the families, when their kids are no longer an inpatient, came back to help maintain the garden. And so from year to year, they keep expanding the garden and having vegetables to feed the kids who are, who are inpatient. So these are really like seed grants. So yeah. they're like seed grants, and they don't go on to then get yeah. expanded. Some of the grants, there was a grant in, grant in Nigeria, uh, they applied for that grant to add prophylactic anti-malarial to the child welfare clinic. So when the kids came to get their vaccines and get weight and get nutrition support, they also gave them prophylaxis for malaria. Well, the benefit of that program accrued the, to the directors of the project. But then they get other, they got other grants and they got invited around the world to present papers on their work. And the, the young man who was directly said, I only was initially interested in malaria for the project. Now it has become my career. And so instead of thinking of going to do something else, now he's a malariologist and he's just been enjoying his career in that area. Think about what it would have meant for you had you had something like that when you were a child. Exactly. Although maybe you wouldn't have gone into the into the world doing what you do had it not been for <laughs> had it not been for malaria, right? <laughs> well, Koye, I want to thank you so much for your passion and your work. And I'll put links in the show notes to the book. And you know, I think this is something that Americans, we just have to kind of continue to bring this to the foreground. That I like what you said that health is a human right and healthcare is how we get there. And I appreciate that. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, Lair. Sometimes we need to take the 30,000 view from above to really see what's happening on the individual level. Dr. Orende's conversation today really highlights what is happening around the world and what might happen at home if we were able to step out of the box and become humble. So here are my takeaways. Number one, Thank you and so grateful for my amazing guests who do so much for kids, not only in the United States, but around the world. And so grateful to Dr. Oyerende for spending his time with us today. Number two, Dr. Oyerende's book, Who Should We Let Die, addresses a core question. 
Do we care about our neighbors enough to go beyond the emergency room or office doors and to really care enough to move the needle? Number three, there are two ways to look at dysfunctional healthcare systems, the pay-as-you-go and the GoFundMe. In the United States, children rely on their parents' employee health care benefits or, for the poorest among them, Medicaid. In the middle is a group who don't qualify for either. The resulting exorbitant medical bills destroy finances or appear on Facebook GoFundMe pages begging for the kindness of strangers. Number four. For Koye, the denial of health services for all is a human rights abuse. While healthcare executives benefit from outrageous salaries, the poor get poorer and sicker. Number five, there are many barriers. Falling in and out of qualifying for Medicaid and CHIP, red tape and administrative hassles, and too many programs that fail to align. Number six, COVID highlighted all the fault lines, politics, policy, and personal well-being. Our minoritized children bore the brunt of fatalities, their parents and their grandparents, their neighbors, crowded with lack of access to resources, red tape, and loss of jobs all got in the way of survival, and yet we let it happen. Number seven, what should or could happen committing to the proposition and value that health is a human right by providing health care access for all? Number eight, this is not rocket science, and there are examples all around the world. The United Kingdom, Canada, Europe, Japan, even Cuba and Rwanda provide health care for all, while we in the U.S. fall behind in child mortality and wellness. This is not a proud patriotic moment. Number nine, our pride that I can do this by myself, and you should too, gets in the way of caring about my neighbor which ultimately is better for me and my family. Number 10, we can be humble. We can self-examine what is going wrong for so many. We can acknowledge that we can and must do better. We can learn from others. Number 11, we can share our ideas and skills. The American Academy of Pediatrics cares not only for kids in the United States and Canada, but also is a world leader on health policy and clinical care. The AAP section on global health provides opportunities to our international societies to learn from us. The neonatal resuscitation program, immunization campaigns, TB, HIV, malaria research, and offers eye-catch funding for seed projects. We have much to share, but much to learn. Number 12. I am not speaking on behalf of the AAP in any professional capacity, but as an individual and as a member. If you are not an AAP member, now is the time to join. You can even do monthly payments. If you are an AAP member with an interest in global health, you can join this section on global health. Number 13, Dr. Oyende leaves us with a call to action. This will have to happen. Number 14, vote. Number 15, thank you for your listenership and advocacy. Be the change. Thank you for everything you do. I appreciate you being tireless advocates for children in that one-on-one in the office and hope today's conversation will help you sit back and think about the larger picture and what we can do as individuals and as a group of pediatricians here and around the world 
to change the needle for children. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown, and I hope you found it as interesting as I did. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. Music was composed by Connor McHugh, and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero. If you would like to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino and on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. I would love listener ideas and suggestions and hope to hear from you. Thank you so much, and I hope you will join me next week.